And um, we won't have scripture reading this morning, but I'd invite you to follow along as I preach through this particular section. 1 Samuel chapter 31, where it's still in the story of David. And um, we've been watching this young man go through all these various trials and difficulties. And last, year, last week he came on the very brink of committing murder. He lost his temper and he was ready to go and, and uh, take Nabal's life and his whole household. And we saw how Abigail ran interference and how we're to be peacemakers in our lives. This morning we turn a corner and we're in 1 Samuel chapter 31. Let's pray. Lord, I'm asking this morning that you'd help me to share your word and make it applicable. Thank you that uh, this is Baptism Sunday. We get to see three young adults uh, publicly testify that they are followers of yours. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. I heard about a man. There was a man that was walking along the beach. It was, it was the uh, Pacific Ocean Beach someplace. And all of a sudden he heard a voice, and it was God. And God said, son, you have been so faithful to me that I want to grant you one wish. I want to grant you one wish. What do you wish for? And this man was so, so excited. He said, God, I've always wanted to go to Hawaii, but, but, but I'd hate to fly. So my wish is, is that you would build a bridge to Hawaii. You would build this bridge to Hawaii. And God said, Son, that is totally impossible. Think about the logistics of that. Now, I want you to come up with another wish. And this man said, well, you know, I've been divorced four times. And all my ex-wives say that I'm so, so insensitive. My wish is that I would be able to understand a woman. I would be able to understand how she feels and how she thinks. There was a long pause, and God said, do you want two lanes or four lanes on that bridge? <laughs> and all the men said, Amen. <laughs> uh, sorry, ladies. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Wishing for something. We want to wish for something, and we wish for many things. One friend, in all seriousness, said, I wish, my wish, is that I could marry my youngest daughter, a fellow pastor. He had been diagnosed with cancer, had a short time to live, and he said, I just want to live long enough to marry my youngest daughter. And he made it, and he died two weeks later. We're all going to die. It's inevitable. It's not if, but it's when. The Bible says that it's a fact of life. One of these days, like our grandparents and like our parents and like our brothers and sisters, perhaps, or relatives, we will die. It's a morbid thought, but it's, it's sobering, but it's true. And what do you think those people around you, those people that survive you, what do you think they're going to say at your eulogy? What do you think they're going to say at your epitaph? What do you think they're going to say at your funeral service? One lady had written on her tombstone, in life, she talked non-stop. Now she has all eternity to listen. All eternity to listen. I was at the Canyon City Cemetery yesterday. I took a ride on my motorcycle. I just got my motorcycle running. Yay! 
it's been over a year. I, I, I had a dead battery, and I needed some oil, special oil, and I just got it, all those two things together, and I got on my motorcycle, went for a ride, and decided to go up to Dock Creek Road, and, and, uh, and then I ended up at the cemetery. I've had a couple of funeral services up there, but I wanted to walk around. I like to walk around cemeteries because you find interesting things. Did you know that there's a young man that died up there at 22 years of age at the hands of the Paiutes and the Bannocks? An Indian raid killed a young man, 22 years of age. Did you know that I saw one particular tombstone? It was a beautiful tombstone. And I noticed that the man died three days later after his wife. I also noticed that there's a number of tombstones up there where wives have died and they've got their date of birth and they've got their date of death and then they have the date of birth for their husband, but they have, the husbands haven't died yet. Isn't that interesting? We all have an appointment with death. We're all going to die. A number of years ago, we were all confronted with what happened in Arizona. It seems like every year or so you hear about these crazy guys that you know, fire, fire off and kill individuals. Five people died in Arizona by this crazy gunman. One of them was a nine-year-old girl. And I'll never forget watching on the television her funeral service. And there were 1,500 plus people inside of this church. And in the background, they were playing the lyrics to the song, Somewhere Over the Rainbow. And tears came to my eyes. Today we read about Saul's death and we're reminded of his epitaph. Did you know that Saul's epitaph is found in chapter 26, verse 21? Listen to it. Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will not harm you again. Remember, David spared Saul's life in the cave of Adullam. He had every ample opportunity to slit Saul's throat. In fact, his men said, this is God's opportunity for you to take revenge. And David did not do it. And later, Saul found out about it. And he said, David, I will not harm you because my life was precious in your sight this day. Behold, I have played the fool. If you want to summarize Saul's life, it would be those five words. I have played the fool. That's an apt description of Saul's life. Saul could have said, I had God on my side, and yet I lived as though, I was, as though he did not exist. I lived as though, he was, as though I was a practical atheist. There was a glorious sunrise at the beginning of my administration. I was head and shoulders above the crowd. I was handsome. I was tall. I was capable. I was able. The people picked me as the first king of Israel. I was winsome. The people of Israel thought that I could leave them, but they did not know the inside of me. I played the fool. Now, this is what somebody writes about playing the fool. J. Sidlow Baxter, which was a writer from yesteryear, describes what it means to play the fool. A man plays the fool when he neglects his godly friends as Saul neglected Samuel. A man plays the fool when he goes on enterprises for God before God sent him as Saul, Saul did. A man plays the fool when he disobeys God even in seemingly small matters as Saul first did. For such disobedience nearly always leads on to worse default. A man plays the fool when he tries to cover up his disobedience to God by religious excuses as Saul did. God said to obey is better than sacrifice. A man plays the fool when he tries to persuade himself that he is doing the will of God as Saul tried to persuade himself when all the time deep down in his heart he knows otherwise. A man plays the fool when he allows some jealousy or hatred to master and enslave or deprave him as Saul did. A man plays the fool when he knowingly fights against God as Saul did in hunting David to save his own face. A man plays the fool when he turns aside from God 
from the God he has grieved and seeks an alternative in spiritism in traffic with demonic spirits in the beyond. A man plays the fool when he does all of these things. Saul not only lived a foolish life, but he also died a tragic death. I want you to look at the sad account of his life. Chapter 31, and let's look at verse 4 this morning. Chapter 31, verse 4. And I want you to notice, verses, excuse me, in verses 1 through 4. Now the Philistines fought against Israel. The Israelites fled before them, and many fell slain on the Mount of Gilboa. The Philistines pressed hard after Saul and his sons, and they killed his son Jonathan and Abinadab and Malachishiah. The fighting grew fierce around Saul, and when the archers overtook him, they wounded him critically. Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and run me through. In other words, take my own life, or these uncircumcised fellows will come and run me through and abuse me. But his armor-bearer was terrified and would not do it. So Saul took his own sword and fell on it. Now, I want you to imagine the scene with me this morning. There's a massacre happening. And what's happening is, is the Israelite people are fighting the Philistine, and the Philistines outnumber the Israelite army, and they begin to rout them, and pretty soon Saul is surrounded by hundreds of his men that are slain, arrows and swords and all of this mayhem that's going on around him. And eventually the scripture says that Saul's own sons, his oldest three sons, are dead, including Jonathan, the son that David so much loved, and they were so tight and, and friends together. It's a slaughter right in front of him. This is happening. He can't believe it. And the scripture says that Saul himself takes a direct, direct hit. It's a gut shot wound. He's not going to live. He knows his days are numbered. He has been hit with an arrow. And he tells his armor bearer, take out your sword and run me through. He wants his armor bearer to kill him. You see, he does not want to uh, run the final indignity of having the hated Philistines torture him or make sport of his body. Isn't it interesting that he's so concerned about his own image with the enemy, but shows little concern for his relationship with God. What are you talking about, Pastor Ron? Well, in this particular passage of Scripture that we read about, we don't read anywhere where Saul cries out to God, where Saul asks for God to forgive him. We don't read anywhere in Scripture where he makes amends for his past ways, where he asks God to give him grace. We don't read about any of this. All he's concerned about is, is that the enemy will not make sport of him and make sport of his body. And that's what happens when disobedience dulls a person's senses. People often say and think, somehow I've lost contact with God. And there's not a single prayer that Saul uttered. Did you know that there's a, there's a it's true, there's a chilling similarity between the way that Saul died and the death of Adolf Hitler. Did you know that according to history, one of Adolf Hitler's greatest fears was being found dead by the enemy? So according to history, Adolf Hitler made up this plan when it came to the end of the war. He gave his wife a pill that had poison in it. She was to take that pill and she did, Eva Braun, and she died within two minutes, three minutes, 
And then he took a pistol to his mouth and shot him. And he made arrangements with his aides to take he and his wife's body someplace, douse it with gasoline, their bodies, set it afire, and burn their bodies until no one could recognize them. He did not want his body to be made sport of. He did not want his body to be shown into all the nations to show how foolish and how terrible and awful his dictatorship was. So when the time came for him to die, he was burned after he shot himself and after his wife took the poison. Back to our story. Saul falls on his sword and commits suicide. But the next scenes are even worse. Look what happens in verses 7 through 8. When the Israelites along in the valley and those across the Jordan saw that the Israelite army had fled, hundreds are dying right and left, and it's a, it's a, it's a massacre. And the Israelite army, they begin to flee. And that Saul and his sons had died, they abandoned their towns and fled, and the Philistines came and occupied them. The Philistines moved in, they begin to take over the sacked areas, and they begin to live in those cities, and they begin to strip the dead. Now that's normal in battle. That's normal in battle. You would strip the dead, you would take the weapons away from them, and you would make sure that they're dead, so they wouldn't get you. And often when they strip the dead, they would also take all the valuable things that are on the dead soldiers' bodies. And while they were stripping the dead, all of a sudden they came upon King Saul, and they came upon his sons. And notice what happens in verse 9. They cut off his head, Saul, and they stripped off his armor, and they sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim the news in the temple of their idols and among the people, and they put his armor in the temple of the Ashtoreth and fastened his body to the wall of Beshan. Now, the man that was so concerned about having his body made fun of or sport over, that's exactly what happened. The Bible says that his head and his sons were severed from the rest of their body, and then they hung Saul's body and all three of his sons, including Jonathan. I can't help but think of Jonathan as an innocent in all this. He had a pure heart, good heart, but he got caught up in what his dad was doing. And so there's Saul... Three of his sons, their headless bodies, are hanging in this pagan temple. And all the armor and all the weapons are there as wall decorations to be made fun of. They put his weapons and fastened their headless bodies on the temple wall. I want you to listen to what somebody writes about this. This is Alfred Eldersheim in his historical writings. He, he writes so eloquently. And now it was night, and the headless bodies of Saul and his sons, deserted by all, swung in the, wood, in the wind on the walls of Bresherhan amid the horse music of vultures and, and jackals. What a horrible, tragic sight. But... It need not have been so. You say, what are you talking about, Pastor Ron? It need not have been so. so. And the reason why I say that is, is because God, Saul spit in the face of God. God was totally left out of Saul's administration and reign. 
he would give some sort of wink to God and then he would go about his own business and do the things that he wanted to do. He said, I'll live and die as I please. And that's why Saul's epitaph is written, I have played the fool. You might want to say he spit in the face of the one who gave him grace as if to say, I don't need you. And this is what another person writes. This is the bitterest of all, to know that suffering need not have been, that it has resulted from an indiscretion and an inconsistency, and that it is a harvest of one's sowing, that the vultures which feed on the vitals is nestling, the nestling of one's choosing. Oh me, this is pain. Now, I want to make three observations at this particular point and get on with our service this morning. Observation number one. We all have an appointment with death. We all have an appointment with death. It's not if, but it's when. It's sad. It's true. We all have an appointment with death. It's a morbid thought. It's not if, but it's when. The Bible says that man is appointed to die one time. We don't get a second chance, a third lap around, a fourth lap around. There's no reincarnation, one time only. Did you know that the ancient Greeks and the ancient Romans had a custom? Whenever anybody died at a particular funeral service, the dead person's body would be ushered around to the various mourners, and then they would say, eat, drink, and be merry, for such as you will be in the near future. We all have an appointment with death. Second observation, we need not fear death. We need not fear death because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. You know what the Bible says? This is what the scripture says. I don't say this. This is what the Bible says. The Bible says that Jesus says, I am the resurrection and life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. Will live even though he dies. How we put our faith and trust in the Lord. And number three, therefore, we need to live our lives very wisely, very wisely in obedience to God and not live our life foolishly and not live our life foolishly. We need, in other words, to make our life count. Don't waste our life. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll do what I ask you to do. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. A number of years ago, Peter Marshall, who was a former chaplain of the United States Senate, remember a man by the name of Peter, they made that Hollywood movie about him, uh, they did all this stuff, and he was the pastor of a a large Presbyterian church in Washington, D.C., and he became the chaplain of the United States Senate at the very same time, and he died very young in his life. But he used to tell this particular story. He used to tell the story uh, about... A, um, an old legend that told of a merchant years and years ago in Baghdad. And one day his servant came to the market. And before very long, the servant came back and he was very white. He was white as a ghost and he was trembling. And he was in great agitation. And he said to his master, down in the marketplace, I was jostled by a woman in the crowd. And when I turned around, I saw that it was death that jostled me. She looked at me and she made a threatening gesture. 
Master, please lend me your horse, for I must hasten to avoid her. I will ride to Samara, and there I will hide, and death will not find me. The merchant lend his servant the horse, and the man went to Samara in great haste. And later, the merchant went down to the very marketplace and saw death standing in the crowd. And he went over to her and he asked, Why did you frighten my servant this morning? Why did you make a threatening gesture? And death said, That was not a threatening gesture. It was only a start of a surprise. I was astonished to see him in Baghdad, for I have an appointment with him tonight in Samara. Did you know that Americans would rather talk about anything else? I dare you, go out to lunch today and bring up the subject of death, and they'll stumble over their words. Oh, what are you talking about? Nobody likes to face the fact that we're going to die. It's inevitable. But wouldn't it be behoove a person? Wouldn't it behoove a person? Wouldn't it be um, logical? Wouldn't it be straightforward? Wouldn't it be something that we should prepare for if it's inevitable? Shouldn't we prepare for the life after? Shouldn't we live a life in such a way that at any moment that if we're taken, that we, we could say, hey, I lived my life fully and I lived the way that I was supposed to live my life? Wouldn't it behoove us to live life that way? This is what the Bible says. The Bible says that if you put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, that death is but a transition to eternal life. This is what Scripture says. I think it was Dr. James Dobson a number of years ago that told this story when he was working at the Children's Hospital in Los Angeles. He said there was a large black lady who had a young son that was dying of cancer on a children's ward. And uh, she would spend most of her days and most of her nights in the room with her little boy. And one particular time, she left the room and she had to go down the hallway. When all of a sudden, the nurses ran to get her and they said, your little boy is hallucinating. He's hallucinating. He's saying, I hear the bells, I hear the bells, I hear the bells. And that large black lady pointed her finger at the nurse and said, he's not hallucinating. I told him that whenever the pain got really bad, that Jesus was going to take him home and the bells of heaven would be ringing for him. And he died in her arms You see, as a Christian person, we believe that there is life after death. And we believe that we do not need to fear death because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. That is, you put your faith and trust and hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you bow your heads with me and let's pray together.